I'm Stuart Buchanan, and you're listening to Out From Under, a weekly program about eclectic and experimental Australian music, broadcast on Resonance Extra and podcast by FBI Radio in Sydney. Mention post-punk to any music aficionado, and they're most likely to reel off a list of bands that were active in the UK or the US in the late 70s and early 80s. Australian bands, it seems, rarely, if ever, get a look in. Those post-punk sounds from the Northern Hemisphere did make their way down under, and they had a profound influence on the domestic music scene, giving birth to a cluster of bands that are now rightly fetid, albeit decades after the fact. Bands such as the Primitive Calculators, Pell Mell, Voight 465 and Essendent Airport were among those artists who made a lasting impression in Australia. But there were others who not only picked up the post-punk torch, but also had one eye on British bands such as Cabaret Voltaire or Throbbing Gristle, who skewed more towards an electronic lo-fi punk aesthetic. Out of this came the band Scattered Order and the label they founded in 1979, M-Squared. Over five years, M-Squared acquired not just an impressive roster of bands such as Makers of the Dead Travel Fast, Systematics and Yaya Coral, but they also promoted a sound and a visual aesthetic that was unique in Australia at the time. Today, it not only provokes ferocious fond memories for those who lived through it, but also provides incredibly fertile ground for those of us who didn't. Ground that actually remains somewhat undisturbed in the broader culture of Australian music history. But for Scattered Order, the story didn't end when post-punk reached its conclusion. Far from it. They were active in a variety of different configurations through the latter half of the 80s and the 90s. But I took a discussion over a retrospective box set in 2009 for the original members to get back in the same room together after 25 years. And since then, they've been making new music under the Scattered Order name and playing live to a new generation of audiences. I recently sat down with Mitchell Jones, founding member of Scattered Order and M-Squared, and over a few cups of tea in the kitchen, we talked about a period of alternative Australian music that now stretches over nearly 40 years. The discussion was so wide-ranging that it actually won't fit into one episode of Out From Under, hence this episode is the first of a two-part story, covering the early years of Scattered Order and the formation of their M-Squared record label. In next week's episode, we'll hear more about some of the other bands on the label, and take the Scattered Order story into its second half, bringing it right up to date with their most recent album, Some Men Remember Music. To kick off, though, this is Scattered Order from their 1982 album Pratt Culture. I'm Frank Sartre. Welcome. Beyond. 
So Scattered Order sort of formed in 1979. Yes. Um, can you talk about the conditions, I guess, in Sydney um, at, at that time in Australia and what the kind of music scene was like and what sort of spurred you into forming a band in the first place? Well, the music scene in Sydney was sort of dominated by pub rock, which was sort of um, touring bands playing seven nights a week in suburban beer barns. Um, I was working as a sound engineer for a band called The Numbers, who were sort of playing that sort of treadmill. The whole um, general idea was you meant to uh, work yourself to death on the live circuit in the hope of getting a major le- uh, record contract and appearing on Countdown. That was the career trajectory. But um, mid-70s, punk exploded, and a sort of alternative scene started to develop. In Sydney mainly because of Radio Birdman there was a sort of a heavy Detroit influence but into the later 70s there was starting a bit more of a sort of a post-punk art school sort of scene but because of the cheap rents in Sydney at the time a lot of students were living in the inner city. It just spawned a lot of interesting bands. Some people were developed completely sort of um, Without any sort of overseas influences, other people sort of took on board a lot of overseas influences. I saw that the sort of pub rock scene, which I didn't really like musically, but I just thought the sort of the whole career model was stupid. The whole idea of do-it-yourself appealed to me. I had no musical training, but, you know, that never hindered me, and I thought, well, I'll find some like-minded people and we'll sort of... We'll give it a go sort of thing and I was very interested in recording so I had a bit, a few bits of recording equipment I met up with people with other bits and we thought well we've got some bits of equipment let's start just you know making a noise in the front room and that's how it developed. You talked there a little bit about overseas influence at that time obviously we're talking you know late 70s did you rely on sort of bands travelling to Australia or how else did you find out about that music? No, you read NME. <laughs> you read NME and you went to import record stores and to see what was in there. Yeah. And if something looked interesting, you picked it up. That's how I got into Cabaret Voltaire. I just saw the first EP, the extended play one, picked it up and I thought, oh, this looks interesting, took it home and it just blew me away suddenly. Same with Ralph Records and the Residence. I just saw the Duck Stab EP. I thought, oh, this looks really good. 
you know, took it home and you know, the same. You know, it was just amazing. And the, the whole idea, they came out of like Rough Trade and, and Ralph Records, you know, they, they weren't on big labels. And it was just amazing how the, these little bits of plastic had travelled halfway around the world and we were appreciating it. Then you started to, well, if we like that, um, you know, you, you go and look for something, you know, along the similar vein. It was just discovery by music press and hanging around in record shops. When you got together in your front room to make some noise, were there particular artists or scenes or ideologies that had sort of you had in mind when you started to make that noise no no um we knew what we didn't want to be rather than what we wanted to be we didn't want to be some sort of you know um uh, rehearsed within an inch of its life you know rock band we just thought you know we're in the moment do it record it and listen to it. If we like it in a week's time, fine, sort of thing. That, that, was, the, that was the main sort of driving force, is, yeah, it's what we didn't like. So we're just reacting against that. What you're talking about there, in terms of being very improvisational and genuinely experimental, yeah. not having any idea or preconception about where, you, where you're going to reach, where you're going to end up. There's obviously a lot of musicians working in a more formal kind of classical experimental structure at yes. that time, particularly in the 70s. And I wondered if, um, did any of that have any bearing or was that happening completely separately? That was happening completely separately. We had not much musical, well, virtually zero musical uh, knowledge and not much equipment to make a noise with. Uh, we had a, a small recorder, so we, we, we could record what we did. And it all grew out of that with, with tape experimentation and we didn't really notice what was happening around us at, at that early, very early stage. Once we'd set up the label in 1980, the M Squared label, we started attracting different people to the label and that broadened our, our musical taste. We didn't realise these people existed.
So what was the relationship between sort of Scattered Order and M-Squared? At what point, you know, you formed a band, you're making noise, you're, you're finding your voice, if you like. What was the thought that led to starting a label? Well, we had some good recordings and we had um, a good relationship with Roger Grierson and Double Pink Records, which were releasing sort of uh, post-punk, sort of the Port Criminals tactics, bands like that. They were just around the corner from us. We thought, well, if he can do it, why can't we? We've got some nice recordings here. Why don't we just make it, you know, a couple of hundred and see what happens? And we thought, well, we need a, we don't want the label to be scattered order, so we think we, we need to find a label name. So it was Michael and myself, and we came at R2M's M squared. <laughs> so where did you and Michael first meet? How did you get together? Um, I was in art school, and I... A good friend of mine was sharing a flat with Michael. Michael was then working at Central Railways and some sort of dog's body job. But we had similar taste in music and what we were listening to, you know, and we're just going going around there, you know, taking lots of drugs and listening to lots of records and, you know, wasting our time. <laughs> I know that when M Square formed in the kind of official history, that sort of manifestos were written. I wonder, can you talk a little bit about what those sort of manifestos were and, well, and, and what the sort of philosophy was? Uh, Michael T, who's the other part of M Squared at that time, was, you know, used to sit down at the typewriter, an ancient piece of equipment, and bang these things out. I'm still quite not sure what he actually meant by half of it, but... <laughs> It was just a reaction, you know. He, you know, like the whole thing is the DIY spirit. You don't need a whole lot of musical training. You don't need a multinational company backing you to make music. You know, here we are. If we can do it, you can do it. And also, we like the whole idea of trying to present ourselves to the public as something bigger than we actually were. Well, like we had, the, you know, we had M-squared world domination, you know. We just didn't want to dominate Surrey Hills, Sydney, you know. We wanted to dominate the world. So we, we banged these out and the press and people sort of liked it. it. It was, you know, it was different to the standard band press release or... Happily in uncommon crime. The commonest method used was study. Measure the effectiveness of the law against firearms. Innocent bystanders could be heard in crossfire. The right to apologize for preying on an innocent girl. It is the killer, not the police, who has the initiative. 
out from under i'm stuart buchanan and i'm talking to mitchell jones one of the founders of the australian band scattered order and the post-punk record label m squared it sounds like with the punk scene and the post-punk scene and the record stores you referred to earlier there's a community of people who certainly would sounds like they would be sort of interested in, in what you're doing is that fair i mean did people get what you were doing straight away or did it take some time it took some time um at the time, we, we thought that only people in our well, inner circle or people that we knew got it. But looking back on it, people have come up to me years later who've lived out in the, you know, the western suburbs of Sydney or lived in Brisbane or somewhere and said, oh, you know, I, I discovered these records, they were fantastic, you know. And I think, how did we get there sort of thing. So it was a much bigger group of people who got it than we originally thought. At the time, we thought maybe Felder was a bit self-indulgent, but we, we took the attitude, if we like it, there must be some other person who likes it. <laughs> Just the law of averages sort yeah. of thing. I mean, there wasn't really any radio stations. That was pre, pre-Double J? or it was Double J. Double J, J were there. really helpful. Yeah, they got behind you. They understood They it. They understood it. They liked the whole idea. It was done up the road from them. And as soon as it was released, you know, you'd walk down there with the copy. It was immediate. Mm. Um, it was new. It was immediate. It was different to what they were playing. Mm. And they had the, the attitude then that, you know, they'd give anything a go at least once, <laughs> and, which was good. The press at the time, you had music papers, you had RAM which, you know, the Australian... What was it? Rock Australia magazine or something. And there were some writers there, Stuart Coop and all that, 
who, who were open to what we were doing, which all helped, you know. Mm. And you had a, a, a series of independent stores who actually took the records. The challenges, I think, that you would have faced in terms of distribution and promotion and particularly taking a DIY approach, I don't think they've changed in 30-odd no. years. I mean, it no. sounds like almost the, you know what you're experiencing, even given the internet, you know, um, particularly if you try to sell physical oh, yes. media and music, that um, when you were knocking door-to-door -door in 1980, people still do that today. Yes, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. still doing it. It hasn't changed, and it's still half the time it's sale or return, you know. Yeah. So you always get this awful phone call six months later, or oh, do you want to come and pick up your records? <laughs> Not come and pick up a cheque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, none have sold. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, how did you get around that? Did you start doing mail order, for example? Was that we something? did mail order, but I'm sure we sold bugger all mail order. Right. We sent, uh, we sent a lot overseas to, like... College radio in the US, a number of stations were playing it. You know, they got you know reviewed, but I don't actually remember selling many records to America. Um, to Europe, I don't actually remember selling many records to Europe. But people, oh, I bought your record here. How the hell did the record get there? Mm. Sort of thing. Um, it was just mainly it was Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne. You know. Canberra, you know, Wollongong, Newcastle. We didn't think we'd get to Perth. Or, and it was actually going there and physically taking the records into the store. Later on, we actually had a, a Melbourne dis distributor called Musicland who took an amazing large cut and didn't do much for it. <laughs> so nothing's changed there <laughs> Nothing's either. changed there at all. <laughs> no, nothing's changed. And also, we wanted to price... Everything, somebody on the dole could afford it, <laughs> sort yeah, of thing, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, ch as cheaply as possible. So, you know, any sort of idea of a distributor wanting to take 25%, just, you know, no, no. The cost of making, you know, doing an independent pressing was so expensive, you just couldn't afford doing things like that. But back then, I guess one of the options is to move to a cassette sort of distribution. So cassettes were quite important for M Squared, right? They were. Um, what happened was we we had a number of bands and we all released their first records, which was all fine. But then there were newer bands we'd wanted to release records, but all the original bands wanted to do their second records. And we just couldn't afford, as a label, to do... You know, to do that, and a lot of material was coming out very quickly, like well, being recorded very quickly. So we thought, well, how about we all this other stuff that that was you know sort of being produced, we do it on a cassette. It's quicker. It, the turnaround was quicker, and it was cheaper, and you could fit more onto it, onto the actual cassette. So we did a number, we ended up doing, I think, nine cassette releases. And they went really well. You know, they're, they're fantastic. And I think some of the more adventurous things ended up on the cassette releases. Mm. The musicians, artists involved, which sort of, you know, you get into this mindset, well, is it good enough for a vinyl release? 
you know, or, or tricky conversations. Yeah, to it have. is. And we, the, the labour worked on the on the idea is we put in fifty percent of the money. The artists put in fifty percent of the money. We split the money. Any returns. But, you know, and we ran the studio at that time with outside work to generate enough money for the label to put in 50% of the money because we weren't getting enough returns quickly back enough, you know, to fund the next project.
So let's talk a little bit about Patrick Gibson because he was quite pivotal to the uh, at least the early years of M Square. Tell me about Patrick. Well, um, Patrick Gibson recorded a song called Pulp Baby through, oh, I've forgotten who his name was, through Double J. They actually, I think, did it at the Double J Studios and recorded this one song. Then he needed a B-side and he was... He went to Double Fink Records, who were around the corner, and they were willing to put out a single and said, well, we need something for the B-side. And Double Fink said, oh, we know this little studio around the corner. It was squared. So Patrick showed up at our doorstep with a tape. Here's my song. I wanted to... And we just loved the song, loved what he was doing. And within a couple of weeks, he was sort of recording... Well, he recorded the B-side and then he was starting to record the 12-inch, the rural 12-inch. And he ended up, within a couple of weeks, the third part of M-squared and the third part of Scattered Order. So it was just, yeah. it worked out beautifully. Living in this fellowship's and rotting in a hole Then you, Bob, baby, you and I Carrying a megaton and hiding from the trees Oh, baby, you and I Oh, I don't call my baby, baby, I call our baby, baby But not my baby My love is like a piece of fruit that's rotting in a bowl It's soft and brown and starts to stink It beats up thrown away Let's talk a little bit about how you graduated, I guess, from the studio into the live setting. Um, because, you know, it sounds like from the type of equipment you were using and the approach you were making, which was sort of improvised and experimental, playing live perhaps, we did that feel like a natural evolution or was that something that was quite tough to, to well, consider? It was tough for me to consider. I, I never sort of stood on a stage to play, you know. Stood on plenty of st stages going check one, two, and things like this. And my sound engineer career, it was 81 that Scattered Order first played live. And it was the three, three of us, Patrick, Michael, and myself. We roped in some other people. We didn't have a, a set. We just sort of went and played. The only reason why we played is that we had a, by that stage, a regular M squared night at this Paddington Green Hotel this upstairs room called Brownies. And we had a regular, I think it was a Thursday night there. So, you know, we're always trying to find different people to play. So, you know, it was our turn sort of thing. <laughs> but, you know, after those first initial sort of uh, terrifying steps, we really started to enjoy it. And with the band sort of solidified around the three of us, plus Michael Prowse, this dr uh, a drummer we had met, and we, we went from there. And can you describe those kind of early live performances in terms of the sound and the equipment? And the, the first couple of shows, there was about, I'm sure, about six of us, and Michael T sort of describes it as the Marshall Tucker version of <laughs> Scattered Order. It was sort of lots of guitars, long songs, sort of scribbled bits of paper of various words I could shout out. Patrick would be on one side going, sing now, Mitch. <laughs> and I'd be going, you know, how did I get the short straw to be the singer? But anyway, so it was, you know, it was chaotic. But afterwards, it was just, you know, just, that was exhilarating. You know, 
there's no other feeling like it. It's just so exhilarating. No matter how chaotic, how many mistakes, you know, how many stuff-ups or whatever, it's just exhilarating. Just to, you'd be able to make a lot of noise in a short period of time and if people like it, fine. If they don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I love the idea of having a residency. I mean, was that normal at the time? That well, the sort of bands or labels would. Well, have yeah, that? yeah. It, it, there was a few things happening, but like the Double Pink label again with the Fort Criminals. They had, or oh, and I think it was '79 at the old Stage Door Tavern, which was a sort of inner city dive. They had up, you know, like a midweek residency, like. Those, at those times, venues were saying, like, you know, if you can bring in a few punters to drink beer, we'll give you the room, sort of thing. You know, you organised it, you, you promoted it, you did the door, you know, you know, they get the beer money and you get everything else, sort of thing. And it helped emerging bands, bands that could travel interstate, would come to Sydney and, you know, you know, you can put them on the bill and you can get a big bill together. And it was... It wasn't controlled because, like, the recorded part controlled by the majors, the live scene was recorded, uh, controlled by about two main agencies, I think, Premier and Harbour. And they just locked in all these venues and just, you know, churned through the same bands all the time. Um, but with inner city places, you could get, you know, like a midweek re- residency. And we had that for, for about six months, I think.
Taylor from Resonance Extra and FBI Radio. I'm Stuart Buchanan. I'm talking to Mitchell Jones, one of the founders of the post-punk record label M-Squared and the constant driving force behind the band Scattered Order. Before we get back into the discussion, let's hear a track from their 1982 album Pratt Culture. This is Swiss Like Knives and Forks. talk about Pratt culture so your, your first long player yep talk about the story about how that was made and you know the, the conditions around the time that sort of led to its recording 
by that stage, the band had gone down to a four-piece and we played a number of shows in late 81. We did the... Uh, M-Squared did a... Not a national tour, but Brisbane, Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney tour with a number of different acts. So when we went to Brisbane... Um, I don't know how it came about, but a, a guy called Colin Bloxham had a, a studio and invited us in one evening. And we, we put down, I think, four songs for that Pratt culture. We came back to Sydney, I think, then we had a live recording of one song and we had a few other songs. So during, eight, during 82, we compiled the record. We didn't have enough for a full LP, so that's why one side's 33 and the other side's 45. <laughs> you know, typical, oh, we've got a problem here. Oh, how about if we do this? Great. Yeah, so, and it came out at the end of 82. Really pleased with that record. It, it, it's sort of a hodgepodge of how it was made, but it's sort of, when you listen to it now, it's quite coherent. Are you surprised that now nearly 35 years later, that that record is still talked about. Yeah, yeah. I wish other ones were, but anyway. <laughs> it portrayed the band really well. The band, on the, especially on that tour, was really good. Yeah, I'm really happy with it. But by the end of the year, that lineup didn't exist. It just fell to bits. The fact that it is still fetid, if you like, what do you put that down to? It's a combination of synthesizer and guitars. It was a weird lineup. There's no bass guitar. It was sort of semi-improvised. There was no real. There was some some songs had a rough song structure, and it had a great, you know, live feel. It it sounded like the band, how it sounded, you know, how the band sounded live. And it had this joy in it, a joy of playing the songs. things that I love about M Squared is other than all the things we've already talked about is the visual aesthetic which even again sort of you know all these years later still you know still stands up as being sort of really just beautiful work. Can you talk a little bit about the art and design approach? 
Drusilla Jones, or as she was known then, Johnson, did a lot of the artwork. And we were trying to keep to one aesthetic, but we had this sort of, I don't know, idea or the band should choose the aesthetic. So I think towards the later part of M Squared, it got a bit, not wishy-washy, but a bit diverse. It wasn't sort of tied into that one, one aesthetic because he ended up having a number of different people. The band come in, here's the music, oh, here's our cover. And you're going, well, uh, <laughs> it doesn't really fit our aesthetic, but anyway. But we try to keep it simple, clear, succinct, and also cheap. That's why it's a lot of black and white, because printing was really expensive then. You know, it wasn't <laughs> whip it off on the computer or something. I get a bit critical of certain things and go, oh, I wish that was slightly different. But then when you think about the, th- the times and how it was made, a lot of compromises were made because of, you know, cost. Let's talk about then about the sort of evolution of M Squared. Can you talk us through the trajectory in, the, I guess, the heyday and the height and then how it sort of closed off? The heyday would have been sort of 82. We did the, the tour. That was probably one of the high points. We were releasing a lot of different things all through 82 and into early 83. It started falling apart when, I don't know, people, Michael and Patrick left Scattered Order and formed the AR Coral. They were on a sort of separate trajectory. Um, also, money got really bad in 83. Um, were hiding from the landlord and things like this. Um, And I was doing a lot of live sound and trying to pump as much money into it as I could. But I don't know, the feeling it's sort of somehow gone. We'd all found what we'd like to do musically and it was all different. The three of us was all different. So you sort of came together, I guess, to sort of find your voice, find your trajectory. Yeah. Um, and then once that was found, discovered that actually we're now, we're now on different paths. Yeah, yeah, we're now on different paths. I feel uh, not uh, sort of saddened by the whole thing. Um, but that's the, you know, that's the way, way it happened. The band also at that stage too, by, the, by late 82, early 83, the idea with the label was we'll release it if the three of us like it. It got to the stages, we'll release it if the majority of us like it. You know, two out of three. So I released OK Records on the label. Patrick probably went along with me. Michael didn't like it. And looking back on it now, I shouldn't have. (laughs) Sort of thing. I just, at the time, I thought, oh, you know, this is great. These people want to release something on our label rather than being critical and going well hang on I might sort of like it but you know it doesn't really suit the label and we probably can't really do what the band wants us to do
out from under and that was scattered order and the track called wronging dogs with ladders taken from their 1983 release i feel so relaxed with you let's hear another track from that same ep now this is called heat Heat. 
And that brings us to the end of this episode of Out From Under, but not to the end of the interview with Mitchell Jones. You can hear the second part in next week's episode, where we take the Scattered Order story into the late 80s and 90s, before bringing it right up to date with their new album, released earlier this year, Some Men Remember Music. More info about Scattered Order at scatteredorder.com and on M Squared at msquaredrecords.com. Out From Under is online at outfromunderradio.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as Out From Under Radio and on email at outfromunderradio at gmail.com. I'm Stu Buchanan. I'll be back around again next week for another episode of Out From Under.